Welcome, one and all, to Yes, the final Talking T20 of 2019. I'm Daniel Norcross. I have with me my Elfin Wunderkind for the final time in this year, Matt Roller. And joining us for the very first time, T20 podcast debutante and denim jacket wearing CrickViz analyst Ben Jones. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Pleasure. Dan. Thanks for having Pleasure me. Well, it's, it's lovely to have you in there. Uh, we're recording this from a hotel room in Birmingham with John Lewis gazing out behind us. No, not that John Lewis. Yes, the shop. Other shops are available. We've just come off the back of an extraordinary T20 finals day. I had the singular pleasure of sharing the hotel with the Essex team, and I can bring you incredible, stunning news hot off the press. They're rather happy because they won, and I have no idea how they've done it. Today we are going to dissect their rise from absolute no-hopers to extraordinary winners via, I think, ten games that had to go exactly the way they needed to go for them even to qualify. Then their semi-final victory over Derbyshire, and I'm giving nothing away when I tell you it was a thrilling and extraordinary final in which the fates for Worcestershire after that first match against uh, Nottinghamshire, well, they turned round in dramatic and extraordinary fashion. We are going to pick over the bones and let us start with you, Matthew. That first semi-final is still something that I, I, I had nightmares about it last night and I don't support either side. How on earth did Nottinghamshire blow that? They needed nine runs off nine balls with seven wickets in hand. Or was it even eight at that point? It was quite amazing. I was watching it with Ian Bell in the foodie bit at Edgebaston and I and he could make absolutely no sense of it. Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of felt like there was a collective head loss um, among among that team. I think Tom Moore's shot will go down as one of the great, uh, you know, chokes in T20 history that was was brought on by that shot where he held out second ball to long on, needing to knock it around for singles. That was the point at which they needed nine off nine, wasn't we it? S- we saw the, f- the field didn't come up until they needed one to win off the last ball so they could genuinely have just bunted singles every ball and you know one of them would eventually have gone for two they'd have cruised home it it was you know are you going to give it was any, a cakewalk are you going to give any plaudits at all to the bowling of Pat Brown and Wayne Parnell who did uh, summon up two pretty decent overs yeah I, to be honest I don't think Parnell's over was that good objectively he he, he sort of bowled length balls as though it was a championship game or something it, was, it wasn't like he was nailing Yorkers every ball um, Brown, I think, was very good, and that's exactly the sort of situation you want him in, with people playing big shots off him and not timing his slower balls. He was bowling some some re- really slow slower balls as well, sort of 67 miles an hour knuckle balls, cutters, um, and you know showed again why teams around the world are looking at him with great interest. He's still it's it's very easy to forget because he's now been around for a couple of years that he is 21. He's you know he's he's got. And he's not had the best season. I mean, he had that awkward Portishead second album year, hadn't he, when, uh, when things weren't going precisely the way he might have hoped. His, the disparity between his economy rate and last year and this year was sizable and worrying. He'd had a stress fracture of the back mm. last year, which kept him out of a couple of leagues that he was likely to be signed up for. And instead, he's come back and at that crucial moment delivered. Ben Jones, tell us, what was the, what was the, the win-vis predictor? Well, at one point... I think it had, it would touch 98% for Nottinghamshire. It was essentially in the bag. I'd, I'd already tweeted that Christian and Gurney were going to be in another T20 final and it was the Nottinghamshire Renegades connection again and they were going to go around taking some more T20 titles. But 
yeah, I mean, if they just completely collapsed, what there were there was just that ten minute period where Nottingham needed to make maybe two good decisions, and they managed to make <laughs> maybe one, and they just kept on making the wrong call. Whether it was the, yeah, the Moore's shot was the most kind of obvious one of that, but. I'm not even sure Duckett, who was obviously well set and had played really well with Hales, like that partnership was fantastic. Um, kind of doing different things, playing in different areas, kind of challenging the bowlers in different ways. But it was almost like as soon as Hales went, Duckett kind of lost that little bit of T20 knives that Hales can bring, and he wasn't quite ready to see them over the line. And there were moments where, I mean, even off the last ball, it, w- it wasn't an incredible ball, but he just he wasn't no. able to kind of even just manufacture a kind of little nerdle or a little Get nudge or, on it. or yeah just do anything with it and it was almost like nine times out of ten 99 times out of 100 98 percent of the time ben duckett probably is is thinking a bit more clearly and kind of gets some gets uh gets some bat on it does something with it but it was it was really bizarre i thought the most kind of striking moment was um when dan christian got out and was walking off and pat brown obviously kind of two men at differing ends of their careers there um, and Brown didn't quite give him a mouthful, but kind of gave him a bit of a stare, and Christian gave him a bit of a stare back, and they stood still for quite <laughs> for about ten <laughs> seconds looking at each other. And A, I know who's winning that fight, so I'm not. I think Pat Brown did rather well to get himself out of that situation. But that kind of summed it up that Christian is a man who's won a lot of T20 titles and who's played a lot of this form of the game and has captained in a lot of this form of the game. To for him to look so rattled, we still quite. I think that was still like that was when there was nine to win or whatever it was. Like he, there was still a lot to happen. They hadn't lost the game at that point, but it was almost like that was the point when things really collapsed. I, I, we, I think we'll all have our favourite terrible decision made by a different batsman. <laughs> uh, it's going to be one of those things that'll divide the nation. Uh, for me, it's a couple of decisions by Samit Patel that I still cannot get my head round. We established, well I say we established, the crowd didn't know, nobody really knew apart from Luke Fletcher and the <laughs> players who had to run on a couple of times to explain to the players that in the event of a tie, the match would be decided by the side that had lost fewer wickets. Very recherche, very 1980s, we haven't had that one before, it had nothing to do with boundary count, there was no super over, none of this was communicated to the wider watching public or indeed to the broadcasters, which was somewhat irksome. And <laughs> requiring three to win from two balls um, balls smashed out by Samet I think out to deep backward point curving away from the fielder on the boundary the first run absolutely obvious second run just run for so many reasons just run because if you get out then a faster runner comes in instead of you Samet if you rattle the fielder then you've effectively won the game because you've tied the scores with one ball to go and you can't lose enough wickets to then lose the match then off the last ball, now needing one run to win, and I know you one might fixate on Ben Duckett failing to get bat on ball, which I fully understand. Why is Samit Patel not legging it to the other end? If he gets man-cadded, someone else comes in who can actually run. I mean, it was clueless thinking from a guy who has been playing professional cricket for decades. Well, also, I think we saw yesterday um, something that I, I think in about 10 years' time won't happen and not let Samit remain the non-striker 
there is nothing in the playing conditions, nothing in the regulations, only the sort of nebulous oh. spirit of the game that meant they couldn't have retired him out and put in Joe Clark, who can sprint, let's be honest, about Rolling twice as clever fast. thing. So, you know, this this is something that we will almost certainly see. It's people who are really struggling with 10 balls left of an innings. And we sort of, I think we saw a hint of it in the Big Bash this year where Renegades retired, I think, Cameron White out. They officially retired him out hurt because um, he'd done a hamstring, but it was effectively a decision because he was on, I don't know, 20 or 25 balls and they had Christian in the sheds. They decided to retire him out. And I don't understand why you wouldn't, gamble on that yesterday I mean obviously you could argue it would look stupid if it went wrong and Clark somehow screwed up but I don't really quite understand especially because they would still have lost fewer wickets other than sort of cricketing um, yes I think tradition almost it also it also reminds me of something I think I'm kind of pulling it off the top of my head a little bit but I think it was when Birmingham were in in a finals day and they were it was the first game of the day and Laurie Evans was basically sat in the in the shed looking to to get out there and do some damage, and he didn't get to come in until the last over of the day, the last over of the game. And you know, I think he got like ten from three or something like that, and was just spitting feathers that he hadn't been given an opportunity to do more. And that is more broadly, aside from yesterday, like tactical retirements are something that needs to come in as quickly as possible because the amount of times you see thirty off thirty proves to be a a match losing innings let alone what Samit was doing yesterday yes yeah, so you see this is young thinking and, uh, and it hadn't even that hadn't even occurred to me yesterday but you're absolutely right it's uh, I suppose it's a, tra- a tradition thing there's a fear of humiliating the player because you're effectively saying we don't want you at this point it, it was it, it was extraordinary I mean the whole of the end of that game was extraordinary let's sort of job back a little bit to the start and discuss the pitch I think um, I'm not sure that it was an ideal T20 pitch. We've seen problems with one-day pitches in England this year, whether they're getting tired, whether they've been overused. I mean, Edgbaston's had an awful lot of cricket, so this isn't me having a go at the groundsman. But it was a pitch that was slower and grabbier. Every game that we saw yesterday, until the very last one, followed a similar pattern, didn't it? While the ball was hard, the first ten overs, uh, players were able to get off to a decent start. While captains used quicker bowlers, they went the distance. Once that ball lost its luster, once the spinners came on, it got increasingly hard to bat. And it meant that, you know, 148, I think it was, that uh, Worcester compiled in their first innings, it turned out to be a serviceable and defendable total, notwithstanding that there were a couple of players on either side, Moeen Alley and Alex Hales, both of whom transcended the conditions, you'd have to say, being Moeen 21 off 9, even in that brief period of time, Ben, he just looked a cut above anybody else in his team. It was lovely, wasn't it? Mm, it <laughs> after, really was. after the week, month, summer that Moen's had, it was quite nice to see him kind of just strutting his stuff at a level where he's he is better than most players. And yeah, the two two sixes, I'm not sure if it was two and three balls or consecutive off Carter to start the day, it was just ah, oh, yeah, that's that's what he does when he's at his best and I mean, yeah, obviously the day didn't end as he wanted, but I, I wrote yesterday just the idea that in the next 12 months, England need to build a T20 side for the World Cup, and Moeen should be one of the first names on the team sheet, because spin bowling all-rounders of his quality are not particularly plentiful around the world. Um, and Hales, to be honest, the same. Like England have a few more power play batsmen than spin bowling all-rounders, but not all of them look as accomplished as Hales did yesterday. Just the calmness to his play as well. And that that's probably my only defence of the pitch, is the idea that actually those were the two best batsmen on either side, and they looked like they could cope with it. 
and actually, in, in the same way, in a, in a good test match pitch, we'd say, well, you know, the best players were able to get get something out of the conditions. We are slightly more conditioned in T20 to thinking that everyone needs to be able to kind of get stuck in and do a bit. Whereas actually, yesterday, the two cleanest ball strikers were the two best players. It's a very strong point, Matt, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. I think, um, you know, there's there's very much an argument that finals day I think we said in our preview poll finals day could could have been two weeks earlier between the fourth and fifth tests it would have worked it would have been fine the pitch would probably still have been reasonably slow there might have been a tiny bit better who knows there was definitely a sort of end of season feel yesterday as it had been tacked on at the end of the the longest summer I suppose Um, but you know I think um, realistically I don't think that we can complain about um, who ended up winning you know Essex is spin attack didn't exactly have too much T20 pedigree I think we, we were saying Simon Harmer's eventual seven wickets you know both both of those innings were his T20 best figures um, one followed by the other and Aaron Nijjar was on, playing his second and third T20 so teams should have been able to, to cope better probably and there was some some there was some fairly poor cricket played at times I mean I, I think Ricky Vessels played two Fairly average innings, going at around a runner ball in both. You know, he, it, well, he was he was he was actually the sort of the reason why I guess Hales and Moeen looked to yeah, rise yeah. up there because a player of Vessels' quality and he's hit a lot of runs in one white ball cricket over the last ten years. He didn't look comfortable. Those two did. Hales and Moeen did. I, let's have some final thoughts on Nottinghamshire before we move on. Uh, they appear to me to be a team in some turmoil. I mean, Dan Christian was not able to face the press after the match I can't say as I entirely blame him but it's not a great look the coach Peter Moore's had to come out and talk and talked very eloquently and movingly about basically what a disaster it had been for Nottinghamshire they've not won a single county championship match uh, they had that game in their grasp they threw it away what's, what's going wrong at Nottinghamshire it is a season in Division 2 going to remedy it um, and will it be a season for that matter it's a good question I've I think I think they probably have too much quality and too much depth not to go up next year. Um, not least when you consider that people like Stuart Broad and James Patterson will probably play and will be far too good in Division Two. Um, it, it, it has a fairly similar feel, I think, to um, to Lancashire's season last year, where they similarly, you know, lost the first semi, and the hope was that the T20 would be the big sort of sticking plaster over the wounds, but. In terms of T20, I, you know, I, I, I genuinely think that Knots are probably one of the best. We're probably one of the best three teams this season, maybe even two, up with Lancashire and Sussex um, in the competition. I think that, that realistically, we did not see a final between the best two teams in the competition. They both came fourth in their group, um, and you know, not have an incredibly deep side. They're still effectively in the f- sort of second of a three-year transition phase where if you look at the 2017 team that won it, since then they've lost Lum, Taylor, Reed, Vessels, um, and have then, you know, they had a, they got to the quarters last year in the sort of dying embers of that era, then have brought in these guys like uh, Clark and uh, Duckett over the winter and uh, sort of integrating them and giving them a bigger role. Um, and, you know, you'd have to think that next year with a pretty similar side by the sounds of things, there were some rumours that um, Samit Patel might leave, but I'm not convinced he necessarily will. Um, I, I think they'll have a very similar team and I think they'll be very well equipped to Just better to integrated succeed. by that stage, Ben, do you think? 
Well, I mean, partly that. I'd also think it's, as with, as with these things, we kind of tend to draw conclusions based on the results because that's the only way we yep. can really tell stories. But we, you look at the, obviously all teams yesterday didn't have their full overseas complement that they've seen from the season. Obviously there was no, there's no Mir, there's no Zampa for Essex, there was no Guptil for Worcester, like all these, t- all these players. But you look at the players that not, the player that Nottingham could have really done with yesterday was Imad Wazim, who yeah, would have yes. been superb on that pitch, just digging it in, bowling slightly back of a length. He wouldn't have gone for a run all day. So actually, obviously it didn't come down to that in the end, like Nottingham bowled pretty well, but, at the same time, like it was the barest of margins yet again this summer, and actually a player of his quality of that type could have made a big difference. So we should probably give Nottingham a bit of credit. They they bottled it, but they were deprived they were, of a player were, who would have made yeah, a huge difference. They were in a position to bottle it, I suppose, which is in itself, point. yeah, yep. pretty impressive. And at no point in the day did batting look easier and more comfortable um, than when Alex Hales and Ben Duckett were batting, and they they were a brilliant example of like a modern T Twenty partnership. Where you have one guy who's about five foot seven and left-handed, one guy who's six foot four, right-handed. Duckett, he's much better against pace than spin. Hales, who's probably slightly better against spin than pace. And they're basically impossible to kind of hatch a plan to because if you hatch a plan to Hales to get him out, all he has to do is rock back, punch you for one to the sweeper, and suddenly that plan is the complete opposite of what you want from Duckett, and vice versa. It must be. It must have been impossible um, to sort of set fields, make plans, come up with bowling changes um, to those two, and. You know, Hales, Hales is, Hales for a, for a brief moment looked as though he would be one of the headlines yesterday. In the end, he's sort of an afterthought. Um, but, you know, by the time this podcast goes out, we'll probably have found out that he's likely to have missed out on England's T20 squads to go to New Zealand. Uh, and I think that's probably quite a shame. I think he's in this sort of weird KP style situation where he's, he's been tasked with scoring runs and winning trust back, but clearly he's in England's best handful of players if if the squad was picked on performance alone he would undoubtedly be in there so then he has this sort of bizarre uh, task to win back the trust of Owen Morgan by presumably just sort of staying out of the tabloids for six months while on the T20 circuit um, I'm I'm confused as to what he's meant to be doing well I'm not entirely sure either but when you get self-inflicted wounds then unfortunately you've got to find a way of getting out of it and I mean maybe it is six months out of the tabloids maybe it's a year Time will tell. Let us move on, because we haven't really even talked about Essex yet. The, the second semi-final was something of a... Well, it, it was the low point of the day, really. The, the day was... Uh, that was a, the sandwich filler between two fantastic matches, both involving Worcestershire. Uh, that second semi-final, Derbyshire just didn't really turn up, did they? They conceded the highest score of the day, 160. Uh, they, they never really looked like chasing it down. There were moments when Wayne Madsen hit a couple of sixes and then got bowled. But really, they just didn't have the depth, did they? And, it, and no enormous surprise I mean, for Derbyshire. I know they wouldn't have been thinking of it like that, but getting to finals day was an achievement in itself, wasn't it, Ben? Yeah, of course. I mean, they've they've had a kind of mixed season. They've you know they've they've got to the to finals day, and that's impressive. But they've kind of done it with a fairly kind of cautious style. And what will disappoint them most, I imagine, is that. At the break yesterday, 160 is probably slightly too many. Maybe, I mean, Billy Godelman said 20 too many. But if, if if they'd have been chasing 150, that would have basically been their dream scenario. Chasing 150 on a sticky pitch is what Derbyshire have built their side around in terms of the personnel and the way that Madsen is meant to work in the middle overs. That is, that's how they're supposed to win games. So, on the one hand, they'll be really disappointed with that. On the other hand, they never really got going and they never looked kind of 
they never looked confident. 160 was always going to be too many on that. I don't think anyone would have chased 160 yesterday at any point, well, really. And Essex's spinners came to the fore, didn't they? I mean, that's when we first got the inkling that it was going to be Simon Harmer's day. I mean, that, no great surprise, but his, his T20 figures are not that special. He bowled tremendously yesterday. There was a ball that he, he got to turn from leg stump to hit the top of off. When you're doing that, bowling that to a, leg, to a left-hander, it's devilishly difficult to play. Might both Derbyshire and Worcestershire will come to them uh, shortly. Might they have approached Harmer differently? Was there an argument for completely digging in and trying no attacking shots or the opposite and putting Harmer off his length? Because he, it felt to me yesterday he was allowed to bowl, albeit that he bowled quite tremendously. Yeah, it, it, we were talking about this before we started and it's a, it's a tricky situation because I think teams are sort of reasonably well-intentioned in thinking if we can get Harmer's figures at the end to be four overs, one for 20 will be absolutely fine. But I think in a way that was, those were some of the least likely figures that Harmer would end with because the problem that he's had in T20, he goes at nines in his career, is that he's not allowed to bowl his best ball because someone, you know, your best ball in a championship match, someone will skip down the track and throw you off your length by smashing you for four. Um, but instead, when people are just trying to work you around for one and defend you, he can then suddenly rip one past the defensive shot, and he looks a million dollars. Um, and I think he, you know, he's 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 obviously had a lot of headlines in the past month or so, but he's clearly a, a sort of confidence type of a player in that he, you know, he seems very he holds himself very well, he talks very well, um, and when he's on a roll. You know, he lets you know about it. He, he holds himself like he uh, like he's he's well aware of the fact he's got your number. It's like a, he's an alpha off spinner. Pretty pretty much, yeah. I mean, he 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 said to me about three weeks ago that he he said, "I know in myself, I'm the best off spinner in the world." And you know, I I don't think he is, but I think having that sort of supreme self confidence can only stand him in good stead. Um, yeah, I think the tricky thing yesterday was that teams probably either needed to accept that Harmer was going to bowl four overs for twelve. Uh, if they were going to defend him or they could take some risks and hope that he took three for 30 rather than what ended up happening which was a sort of mix in between they let him bowl his best balls and we know that Harmer's best ball was good enough to get a lot of county well, batsmen out that, that's absolutely right and uh, Derbyshire have relied this season so much on a top four scoring runs they've got the massive bulk of Derbyshire's mm. runs and so you sort of half wondered whether they might take the prudent decision, which is just to ensure that they kept those four batsmen, or at least you know the, the ones that were in, safe, and then attack what is a, a fairly mediocre bunch of backup bowlers for uh, for Essex. I mean, Aaron Nidja bowled well yesterday, but Jamie Porter doesn't strike me as a T20 bowler. He's a very very fine red ball bowler, but there are weaknesses in Essex's attack which Derbyshire just didn't exploit. Yeah, I mean, it's an, it's an odd one, isn't it? Because, yeah, there, were we there are weaknesses in it, but it was also a, a very well-suited attack for the pitch yesterday. That someone well, like Dan Lawrence. Well, exactly. Lawrence is ragging it, and you think, mm. how, how are people going to score? I mean, in the final, when he, when Lawrence kind of turns up again, that that was probably the pitch coming into play more than maybe you'd, you'd hope, really, for a kind of a good, balanced T20 contest. But someone like Ravi Bapara is the perfect bowler for that kind of pitch. He's going to kind of run his fingers down the side of the ball. He's going to bowl cutters, and you don't need someone like Porter in that kind of situation and that was why they took him out for the final and they didn't, they didn't need well, him. they didn't really need Cook either. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, when, on, on commentary I was essentially constantly looking to see how many more overs of medium fast needed to be bowled because really in an ideal world once we got to the final it was, you know, 
Daryl Mitchell was going to be considerably more effective than Charlie Morris and he sort of wondered if there was any real need even to have picked a new ball bowler. Yeah, I mean, in the end, I think Essex bowled three of what you'd consider to be something approaching pace. It was, you know, he was, there was, I think, um, the first three overs of the innings, two of which were bowled with the keeper stood up um, to Sam Cook, were the only ones that you would say were genuine quick bowlers. And I think that was the thing that we probably underestimated about Essex going in, despite the fact their attack was quite, you know... it, it they had they had one bowler who'd been going at under nines in the tournament who was actually available in Bapara. Everyone else had been smashed, but that's partly because they play on pitches that maybe don't suit them that well at Chelmsford. Um, but yeah, it, you know, they pre- pretty much everyone in the team was a bowling option. I think everyone apart from Wheater could have dished up some kind of mediums at least. Like if, if well, Cameron Delport got a bowl, yeah, and Tender Charter doesn't really bowl anymore, but he would have been pretty useful on that pitch, bowling some high seventy mile an hour cutters and. You know, uh, doing exactly what Bopara did. Let's move on to the final. Um, as we wave a brief and tender goodbye to Derbyshire. Essex against Worcestershire. Worcestershire barely being able to believe how they've got there. Essex on a roll after having beaten Derbyshire comfortably. Uh, they chose to put Worcestershire into bat. And there were some raised eyebrows. Uh, th- there was a sense that dew was going to come in and once the dew comes in then the ball skips on and it all gets much easier to bat well the dew didn't really materialise um, it was a curious kind of game because again Worcestershire compiled a total of 145 was it I think which was pretty much what they'd got in the first game the match was following a very similar pattern to the first two which was that runs were relatively easy to come by in the first ten overs then got increasingly more and more and more difficult had Essex followed the script didn't they um, Worcestershire when they came to bowl took pace off depressed the run rate in the uh, opening overs in the first six overs it was the slowest power play of the lot from Essex of, of the six power plays that got played and uh, there was an inexorable sense that the pitch was getting tireder and tireder and that Essex may have made a mistake at 88 for five seven overs to go needing to go over nine and over we'd all written the story that Worcestershire had become the first team to retain the T20 blast and then, I mean, not out of nowhere because we've seen Ravi Bapara do it before, but somewhere akin to nowhere, combination of Ravi Bapara and then at the death, Simon Harmer with the bat just transformed it. And it was, I mean, it was a wonder to behold, wasn't it? I mean, it was, it was great because what's always fun about finals day is that it creates narratives as well as kind of reflects them across, from across the, the summer. So there's been all kinds of things that have happened in the last two months that the players that don't make it to finals day but one of the key defining things for Essex this, this year has been batting Bapara at six because they've got a, they've got an odd batting lineup, which is kind of good mid-paced players but no no one kind of explosive other than Delport and so their main explosive batsman was Bapara so they, they moved him down and that has worked so well repeatedly kind of digging them out of holes and so it was, it was only really fitting that like that was how they won the final I think what, how, I mean he won them the semi-final the quarter-final I should say exactly as well, really against Lancashire and so it's kind of it's just continuing a pattern what was so, what was what was nice was that as is as has been the theme of the English summer more generally is that we'd all just written them off we'd all just gone yeah no that's not happening now and then obviously he comes back and yeah and, and, and what I also really liked was just the kind of dichotomy at the end between Papara kind of just so like assured in his role having just not hit the winning runs but kind of got them to the winning position just takes his helmet off and just kind of starts wandering around all handsome and cool and winking and winking wink. yeah and blowing, wink. <laughs> blowing kisses at the camera which is uh, caught rather well on the on Sky Sports but 
then Simon Harmer at the other end just legging it around Edgbaston with his helmet on, like arms in the air, just absolutely going berserk. And that, and like that kind of, I don't know, there was just quite nice that the two guys who basically defined the the day and the season were there at the end. Well, I mean, he it's a victory for Harmer, isn't it? In a very real sense, not just because they won the trophy, but he's taken over the reins, become captain. He got the best combined bowling figures of anybody on finals day, seven for thirty-five across the two matches. You can forgive him for, <laughs> for being a little bit excitable and having won a trophy that Essex had no right to win four or five weeks ago when we were doing these podcasts and saying, well, we've, we've basically written off Essex unless, and then ran through a, a scenario, and the scenario had to work out perfectly. You know, Hampshire had to lose those games. Glamorgan had to win a game, had to win their first game of the season. <laughs> None of these scenarios were particularly likely and then when you added them all together they were borderline impossible I'd love to know what odds you could have got on Essex winning actually uh, in the early part of August I know it's painful you need never work for Trick Info again Matt if you you could have a judiciously placed bet at that point Uh, it was a sort of miracle wasn't it yeah I mean a couple of points there firstly with um, with regards Harmer he, his his numbers with the bat for the tournament have been terrible going into yesterday. I think he got 25 off 24, and when you consider he's always coming in at the death, those are pretty terrible numbers. He's by no means the man you wanted to stride out and then end up hogging the strike, sort of accidentally almost, um, with Papara stranded at the far end. Um, but secondly, I suppose it fits into this wider narrative of Harmer coming in and really um, shaking things up almost as T20 captain this year. You've got to remember... Um, you know, when we're talking about how unlikely it was they get through, on about an hour before the Kent game, I sat down and had a long chat with him, and he, he his the two words he used to describe their T20 season were frustrating and challenging, and he basically had this whole thing about you know I've been trying to get players to to perform roles they might not be used to, I've been trying to get guys to buy in, it's not always worked, but I feel like I might have laid the foundations for future seasons and I hope that this work actually sort of comes to something in the end eventually at some time yeah exactly and you know I think he was genuinely thinking 24 36 months time um but yeah if you you know you think how big a a thing it is for someone who had he'd captained two t20 games in his career before he was appointed um one last season and a sort of end of season game and one back in South Africa ages ago um, and he he came in. He had enough of a falling out with Bapara that he then dropped him for two games because of the fact Bapara hated batting six. Bapara is given a sort of series of reasonably extraordinary, given the standards of, you know, in county cricket there aren't particularly ex- that many explosive interviews from players, especially yeah. not talking about their, Ravi Bapara exclusive. Yeah, well, yeah, they're, they're, they're not talking yeah. about you know how how much they dislike a decision that's been made in the team, but. Bapara has sort of, you know, he said after the Kent game, um, which, you know, they had to win and Glamorgan had to win. He said after that, I still don't like batting six, but it's something I have to do. Then in the week building up to this, he gave an interview to the cricketer where he basically said, you know, I was watching the, I was watching the CPL and I realized that guys like Pollard and, uh, Russell and all the young West Indians in there, Fabian Allen, people like that are hitting way more sixes these days. Um, this was him watching it last year. 
So I decided that's what I have to do. I have to hit more sixes. And the fact that he basically, you know, decided he was going to and then has is <laughs> pretty extraordinary. At his stage in his career as well. Yeah. Right? and this, he, is, this is teaching, you know, it's, it's, it's learning new tricks at a late stage. Yeah, he's, you know, he's 34 and he's signalling that he's probably going to give up Red Bull cricket next season, seems to be the gist. And I think he really wants to give the T20 circuit a go and in the likelihood is that in higher standard teams especially he will end up batting five or six and playing this very specific role where he basically has to face about 20 balls he takes five as sighters and then just whacks it and if if he can manage to do that then you know Harmer could end up being the man that makes him very very rich because it's a skill that's you know much sought after on the T20 scene there's a lot of players that can do it but not many who can do it as well as he has in the past three weeks um it's been extraordinary and also there aren't many people who can do it who are English mm. because one of the issues that we have with the Blast is because there are so many teams it's a one, wonderful tournament in many ways but because there are so many teams the good players tend to be drawn to the top of the order yep. and so they don't, they don't the reason why Bapara one of the reasons I'm sure why Bapara feels a bit weird about batting six is that he's comfortably one of the best batsmen in county cricket and all of the other ones who are compa- of comparable talent level are opening or batting three so why is he all the way down Actually, as Matt says, in other leagues, you have good players at six because there are eight teams in a league or there are six teams in a league and so the talent is more concentrated. And what it's, as well, in terms of Papara's development, what it's also done is not just got him into an opportunity of um, getting into other T20 leagues. He's probably going to get in the England squad and maybe for the World T20. <laughs> not this, not necessarily for New Zealand, but England don't have death over hitters. And... Right now, we, I mean, we're realistically, or like semi-realistically talking about people like Ross Whiteley being on the on the fringes of the England T20 squad as like specialist hitters because they hit a lot of sixes. Yeah. But Bapara is a far superior all-round batsman to someone like Whiteley. And, he, uh, give you and, so, and even someone like bowling. Alex Blake at Kent as well. Like, they're kind of similar, mm. like Whiteley and Blake are kind of similar levels so they just give it a real, real bit of humpty. Whereas Bapara, yeah, bowls a bit, is a good all-round batsman, could come in four down. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if England took him to, to Australia next year if he can sustain it over the next 12 months obviously yeah, sorry and that's that's something that we'll see um, an interesting development will be that because there's now an actual focus on international T20 cricket rather than it being ODI light for England is we'll work out what they actually want to do because they've been doing, they've been pick, picking some really weird teams where they have Joe Denley at six and they have David Willey in a sort of finisher role that he's just not very well suited to um, and it will be very interesting to see under a new coach as well whether England decide that they're going to you know they're, they're, they're going to sort of pick an analytically driven team pick something that that looks more like a modern T20 side than the side that they've currently been picking which looks a bit more like a sort of 2010 version of T20 2012 version of T20 where you're picking you know your best 50 over players and telling them to whack it a bit earlier yeah. uh, well look we, we'll ponder uh, an England team or an England squad before they go to New Zealand shortly at the end of the podcast let's just briefly spare some thoughts for Worcestershire and for Wayne Parnell because he looked absolutely devastated we're, we're trying to do final stage justice it's hard to do in half an hour uh, 25 needed off two overs still you probably thought Worcestershire were favourites wicket four Simon Harmer comes in wax 18 off seven balls those are the bare figures but there was drama all the way through there was drama all the way through that last over bowled by Parnell um, Essex needed five off two balls five to tie I think it was and the tie would have been enough because they'd lost significantly fewer wickets uh, then off that penultimate ball 
it gets thumped for four and the look on Wayne Parnell's face he was disconsolate he was down on his knees I mean I thought he was going to burst into tears at one point and I, I wouldn't have blamed him uh, but he had to get himself back together for that last ball it showed just how much this meant and there's something sort of really odd about finals day that it is a sort of ridiculous jamboree of, of oddity and madness you know pregnant nuns and people dressed as chickens and hunters hunting foxes and <laughs> everybody trying to draw attention to themselves and make out that they're not really there for the cricket and indeed you know actually while Worcestershire was scoring fours and Essex scoring fours it was very hard to tell if there were any of their fans there because you could barely hear the noise level change when wickets fell and when runs were scored because the vast majority of the crowd was uh, neutral they'd bought their tickets way 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 in advance before anybody knew who was going to be there and yet, and yet, even amidst this, which was a sort of, you know, cricketainment, there was real sort of sadness, poignancy, sorrow. Uh, Parnell was just in bits, and I, I felt appalling for him. But also, it's not just the contrast with the, yeah, like, in inverted commas, cricketainment stuff. It's the fact that there's not really anything like it in the world in t- where a bowler has bowls the last ball like he did in the semi-final. And it, all of that kind of the drama and like the emo- how emotionally draining is to go through that to like every ball's an event in the last over kind of thing. And you just to be clear, to be clear, he, he, he bowled that last ball against Nottinghamshire to drag Worcestershire exactly. from the brink, the precipice, from the two percent chance of winning to winning. So he got this incredible high. And in any other T20 league, he then has three days off before the final, or he has a week yeah. off, or like he had, he had six hours. He had six case. hours <laughs> to go, go back to the hotel and then come back and do it all again. And somehow on the same day, he's bowling the last ball again, trying to defend how. Many. And, and it was almost identical situation, wasn't which it? Was, I mean, which was wonderful in itself. But like that's part, you can see why Parnell's going through a, a level of emotion which you don't normally see from bowlers because like he's, he essentially had to do the hardest thing for a death bowler to do <laughs> twice in a day. And I know some people are going to be like, oh, you know, gets paid a lot of money. Da, da, da. But like it's, he's a human being and he's at the sharp end of what he's his whole career has been leading towards in in some respects. Uh, it's it's it was an amazing finish. It was extraordinary. Uh, I, th- I think the crowd was. Um, uh, engaged it, in that sense by the end and actually uh, most finals days I've witnessed a bigger drop off in the crowd this year I felt more of them stayed towards the end uh, and perhaps in part because they bought their tickets well in advance perhaps because it was Saturday and they'd been drinking for eight hours and, and the weather was rather nice as well the weather was I mean it was fantastic it was picture perfect it was an absolutely perfect T20 finals day Matt it's not the, the last T20 finals day. There's going to be T20 finals day next year. 18 teams still playing the T20 blast. And yet, it felt, because the 100 is coming in, as if this was the end of an era. Is that, is that us overplaying, perhaps? Or, or do you think there is a significance to this one, this particular finals day? There definitely was a feeling of that. Um, I think not least with you know with the except well Nottinghamshire were the first team out and then you sort of realised that it was going to be an unfashionable county in inverted commas winning it um, I, I think the other thing that we have to bear in mind is how um, a narrative sort of eventually develops over the course of an extraordinarily long T20 season um, where you know Essex can go through effectively you know <laughs> in-house turmoil behind the scenes where a senior player is dropped by his captain and then still win the thing all in the in the space of a season um but we sort of have a narrative arc that leads up to that and lends itself to that which we probably won't have next year given how early the 
group stage finishes, which is going to be, you know, by the start, pretty much in the first week of July, I think. Uh, and then finals day. Two it, months later. Yeah, two months later, which just doesn't really sort of suggest that we're going to have, have the same, you know, Essex from the brink, um, coming back and having this, you know, I hate, yeah. I, I, you know, I hate the concept of momentum in T20, but this sort of mood around the squad, um, is clearly very different now and has clearly improved to what it was two months ago. Um, and you've seen that happen on the pitch, which you probably won't in. Well, whether it's momentum or whether it's actually alighting upon a plan. Mm. And T20 is so much more tactical, a strategic game, isn't it, in, in many ways, and mad as it may sound, than test cricket. You've got to get your formula right. And if you get, once you alight upon that formula, it is repeatable. It doesn't mean that you're going to win every game. But it means you're massively going to increase your chances, and, and Essex did do that this year. Uh, now, look, I said we were going to discuss an England team because this is talking T20. It's not just talking T20 blast. We've got a couple of minutes. Let's put our heads together. The chairman of selectors, Ed Smith, needs a break. Let's face it. Um, I think he requires the combined talents of Roller Jones and Norcross. Uh, what is that? Let's let's go with the bowlers first. Because I am wondering if England are going to go around resting players, and there's talk that they may, because it's a tour a long, long way away. It's been a very, very long summer. What are the bowling? What's the bowling attack going to be for England out in New Zealand? They're playing five T20s deliberately to get practiced for the World T20 in a year's time. Well, by the sounds of things, Saqib Mahmood is likely to be um, involved, and I think he's uh, an exciting. Bowler, I've you know he 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 hits ninety miles an hour, which isn't something we should take for granted. Um, whether or not he's in the best eleven come next year is possibly up for grabs. Um, I'd like to see Brown given a go. I'm not convinced that he will be, um, just because he's a slightly different type of bowler to what England have. In that he's, uh, you know, he he's a specialist death bowler who relies so heavily on slower balls um, in a way that maybe Archer doesn't because he's more. Well, he, he can bowl at 95 miles an hour. So I yeah. Suppose, yeah um, well, I think if you were going to be talking about a specialist death bowler for England, we probably saw both of the main options yesterday. Because mm. you can either go for the 21-year-old Englishman, Pat Brown, or you can go for the veteran, Harry and Harry Gurney, um, who's probably slightly less likely to be picked, but has been going around the world and playing for Kolkata and the Renegades and in, in Australia and has been performing excellently and is widely regarded internationally as a very, very good death bowler. And he's a left-arm option and he's got all of the variations. He didn't bowl amazingly yesterday, but he bowled well enough to show that, yeah, when it comes to it, he's still a great option. And if they want to give Pat Brown slightly longer to kind of go away, grow over the winter maybe come back next year, do it all again in the blast, maybe the 100, and then give him a push to international cricket. And I, I think that might be better suited for him. Well, we need to be mindful, don't we, that the next World T20 is to be played in Australia. And we've witnessed a lot of T20 cricket this year on English pitches, which have uh, been a bit challenging. It's, it's suited bowlers who take pace off the ball. Come the Australian T20, that might be a slightly different scenario, mightn't it? Well, it's it's always double-edged, isn't it? But I think on the the big playing surfaces, uh, like uh, the MCG and places like that, where, yeah, it's going to be hard batting-friendly surfaces, You, in a way, you're thinking, well, maybe the, like slow balls and cutters aren't going to be as relevant. But Brown can push it up to 88 miles an hour when he needs to, but he can also 
go through the changes. He's a he's a complete bowler. The right. issue isn't that he doesn't have any any particular skill set. I mean, he's not as quick as Archer or Sakib, but it's more that he's he's still growing, he's still getting better, he's still refining those skills. He has them, but they're raw at the moment. A spinner, though, it strikes me as something an area that England are still struggling with, and Simon Harmer's actually. <laughs> professed his interest in playing for England. He's not going to be qualified yet, we know this, but there's talk about his visa application being uh, looked at, uh, I suppose, generously. And He will, not play, he will not play T20 cricket for England. <laughs> he may well play Red Bull, but he will not play T20 well, cricket for England. Uh, OK, so I, I put back to you, uh, bear in mind that this is Australia we're talking about, who are the bowlers that England want? And surely they come from the leg spin department, and there are quite a few of those, but they're not really being talked about. This year, we we did last year, sort of, we had our eye on leggies. Mm. This year, they've not been as prominent. Yeah, I think Ben and I are both queuing up to say Matt Parkinson's name, basically, <laughs> at this point. <laughs> I think he's, he's um, just clearly really, really good. Um, he's, if, if Rashid isn't fit, or if there's, you know, I it, there's always a sort of um, there's always people making noises about Rashid and he's he's had an injury and um, I think it would be a really good opportunity to give Parkinson a go in the international setup. Um, I think the one area of perhaps slight concern is he's not got a great record against lefties comparatively. He's very good um, taking the ball away from right-handers, but I don't think he has a sort of pronounced enough googly necessarily um, that he's going to treble left-handers I think his splits is sort of two run difference between right and left and the blast this year obviously not an enormous sample but um, you know the only the only way we learn about that is by throwing him in you'd be very nervous going into a game against the West Indies in Australia um, with Gale and Lewis and Hetmeyer if your spin attack was Rashid and Parkinson both spinning the ball into him which is why I think it's still important that we don't disregard Moe Nally because he is, yeah. of all the guys who are turning it away from the left-hander, he's the most reliable option. There might be someone who comes through in the, in the next 12 months, we don't know, but right now he's probably still, and the fact that he's obviously such a gun batsman, fastest, I think only Cameron Ackmel scores quicker than him against spin in the world over the last two years. Um, and obviously if you're dealing with Cameron Ackmel, you're dealing with the elite. Um, <laughs> but, but, if, but what I mean generally is just that we, we shouldn't disregard him just because he's, he's had a poor summer. Parkin, Parkinson is clearly a man for the future and Rashid is a, a genuinely brilliant white ball spin bowler, but Obviously, this this winter is going to be a case of trying to bring through the next gen. So Parkinson should be the one. Well, you, you've given us a bowling attack pretty much there. Um, bear in mind that obviously Jopper Archer will be back come the World T20. Uh, you've also recommended that Ravi Papara gets put straight back in the England team, which will be in the, in the squad. In the squad, in the squad, which I think <laughs> I think would be lovely. So we've basically got a, a bowling attack. Um, I just want a couple of names. I'm not going to allow you Banton because we're all going to say Banton. I just want a couple of batsmen that maybe our listeners might not have been thinking of. I think, to be honest, the, the batting lineup is so so good for the most part that you, you can kind of predict it will be a similar-ish setup to the so World Cup. Yeah, Roy. Um, I wouldn't pick Root. Um, I, I, he clearly has some kind of <laughs> ego thing where he's obsessed with the idea that he can be a great T20 batsman I'm not convinced he can and You'd be I happy with having Banton than Root wouldn't you? Well probably yeah Butler, Roy Morgan Moeen Alley 
Um, yeah, I, 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 I mean, I'd that's, like that's, Hales as well, yeah. isn't there? Like, well, Hales, if, yes. If, but you, if you want it. to pack it with the stars, like that, that top five can be incredible. And we've not even mentioned Reece Stokes. Like Stokes is no, a, Stokes is an overrated T20 player because he had one very good season in the IPL. Uh, but he's obviously at the crest he's of a wave in terms yeah. of his career. Like he's only getting better right now. You but give me a young batsman then. Give me a young batsman that's, well, that's well, impressed you he's in not, this year's T20. He doesn't have to be young. He's not a, a young batsman as such, but I think a player that the England setup clearly really like and clearly really want to get involved in some respect is Lewis Gregory, um, who is a another candidate for that coming in at six, seven, and just whacking it. And obviously, he's a proper bowler as well. Mm. Um, he and might, last year he was striking at two twenty or so. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I think he might be the kind of person who, if he goes on the if he goes on tour and you know does really does well um, at some point in the next twelve months, um, not obviously not for New Zealand. Um, then I think he he could be in the frame for the T20 World Cup. But I think what we're saying is essentially the batting lineup is way it's the opposite of the uh, it's the opposite of the Test team, isn't it? Mm-hmm. The batting lineup for England is essentially rock solid. There's, we've got six or seven really good options, and then the bowling lineup is we're just we're stuck between veterans and new yeah. new kids, and well, so it's just trying to blend it through. Twelve months is a long time in T20 cricket. Pat Brown could have been found out in the next twelve months, or he could have become. Like bummer at the death. Like you don't, we don't know which way he's going to go, um, and so I think that's the issue. Is it's it's down to the coaches from here on to just strike that balance, and so that's why this tour is so pivotal because it's the first stage in that process. Well, it's time for us to draw the curtain across this season. Another fantastic season, a season um, that had more ties in it than we've ever seen in a T20 Blast competition. It had more matches rained off than has ever been seen, and. It had more cardboard cutout players attending the uh, champagne ceremony than it's ever been seen before as Essex wheeled on Mohamed Amir and Adam Zampa. And then when they uh, popped open the champagne, they pushed Mohamed Amir's cardboard <laughs> cutout to one side, which I thought was an absolutely delicious touch. It was lovely, wasn't it? It was, it was lovely, and it, it, it just went to show what T20 is all about, I think, in this country. It is uh, seen as a, a joyful exploration of the madder and crazier and quirkier sides of cricket and uh, and it's taken seriously as well as we could see by the real passion that was engendered both in the losing team Worcestershire and in the winning team Essex. Essex now have a really distinct chance of becoming the first team to win the county championship and the T20 Blast in the same year. How they've done it I do not know. Both of you have written eloquently and at length on the difficulties of matching up a red ball squad with a white ball squad. Indeed, one of the things that uh, was noticeable in this year's final state was that Worcestershire, Nottinghamshire, Derbyshire have all had pretty dismal seasons with a red ball. They were at T20 finals day. The one, the odd man out was Essex, and it was Essex that won it. A terrific competition, a terrific season, um, a year that passes. What are we going to do with winter? Very quickly. What's winter got in store for you, I suppose, Ben? It's gallivanting off to Australia again. Yeah, I'm off to Australia for the for the Test Series against Pakistan, which will be fun, and then hopefully st- staying out for a bit of the BBL um, and obviously watching what England get up to elsewhere. And you, Matt, are you just stuck in Hammersmith watching <laughs> rainfall, chatting away to Andrew Miller and Osmond Samuadin and Al Gardner and waiting for waiting for April? We'll be, uh, you know, delivering the usual package of high-quality analysis down over the winter, so don't you worry. <laughs> well, look, uh, maybe it's just my glum misery that's coming out here because I've, I've just got to find coping mechanisms for the next six months, or even seven. It is that long. Whatever you're doing to get through the winter blues, uh, wherever you are in the world, thank you ever so much for listening to us. That is 
the end of Talking T20 for another year. So I hope you can join us in 2020 when we will be talking not just T20, but presumably 100 as well. But from Matt Roller, Ben Jones, and from myself, Daniel Norcross, it is all a fond farewell winter. Break. <laughs>